For 20 years, Cultural DC has been making space for art. That includes physical places like galleries, theaters, and affordable housing for artists. But it also includes making space in the conversation for art. We're excited to bring you the second episode of our podcast series with our friends at Kendra Labs. On this episode, we hear from mobile art gallery artist, Jamia Richmond Edwards, about her exhibit, Stay Fly, on view at City Center DC through April 13th. She's joined by Desiree Van Fedrick and Howard University professor, Dr. Melanie Harvey. They talk about fashion and the power of the black consumer. Thanks to our friends at Eaton for hosting this important and timely conversation. Jamia Richmond Edwards has exhibited her artwork nationally and internationally, including the Delaware Art Museum, California African American Museum, Charles Wright Museum in Detroit, Michigan, and her current representation at Krevitz Webby Gallery. Desiree Van Frederick is the founding director of Coleman Cotton Company, a think tank and social equity firm in the Van Frederick Fashion Library and Institute of Material Culture. Dr. Melanie Harvey has published extensively on Black arts movement artists, including Faith Ringgold, James Phillips, and the African Commune of Bad Relevant Artists, also known as Africopa. Hi, my name is Sheldon Scott, and I'm the Director of Culture here at Eaton DC. I'm very excited to have you all here on this lovely, what is it, Wednesday afternoon. Um, just very quickly, just want to thank you and welcome you all to this space. Um, for those of you, this is the first time. Um, Eden is a radical hospitality brand that is focused on creating spaces for um, social progressive change makers. And we do that through cultural programming, which includes art, um, history, uh, panel discussions, activations in our cinema, radio station, and uh, Radical Library, as well as our food and beverage venues um, that specialize in live music, include Wild Days on the Rooftop, um, Allegory, and American Sun. Um, and just want to um, say that this is, um, you know, one of our uh, many opportunities actually connecting and supporting communities. And um, we are very much a space that thinks of ourselves as a community center. And as you go out into the world and think about ways that you can activate this space, please um, don't hesitate to reach out um, for ways that we can support and partner with organizations. And tonight we are very honored to be partnering with uh, Culture DC, who's going to be presenting to you this art program this evening. So without further ado, Christy Maselman. There you go. Thank you, Sheldon. I'd like to thank Sheldon and the Eaton Hotel for hosting us this evening. Uh, thank you all for coming. Um, I'm very excited to introduce Jamia Richmond Edwards, Desiree Van Frederick, and Dr. Melanie Harvey today to talk about Stay Fly, to talk about everything that's going on in the art world, the fashion world. Um, so we're very excited that you're here. Um, Jamia's show in the Mobile Art Gallery is um, at City Center through April 13th. So you should check that out if you haven't. And then after that, we'll be going to the art for a new project with Devin Shimoyama in May. So stay tuned. So without further ado, Jamia, Melanie, Desiree, okay. Hello, everyone. How are you all? Thank you all for coming out this evening. Um, thank you, Eaton DC, and of course, Culture DC, for coordinating this. Um, it's truly an honor to be able to sit on a stage 
with two of some of the most intelligent women that I know. Um, so this is like truly a treat. So you guys just sit back. Um, so before we really get into the meat of it, I want to kind of set the tone, right? Because it's a vibe. It's a, <laughs> it's a mood. It's <laughs> and, a mood. <laughs> um, what's interesting is I, about a year and a half ago, is the first time I began really to uh, begin interrogating the fashion components of my work. Um, although it was very much present, I didn't really address it. I always talked about some of the social, um, the other social context evolving around it, but it was my first time sort of addressing fashion. And when I began unpacking, so I'm from Detroit, um, born and raised, um, I began thinking about it and I, I thought about this song and I'm just gonna play it for a second, hold on Sheldon. Um, and I want to play it because to me, in relationship to fashion, this is what it was like growing up on Seven Mile. And I'm sure it was probably like that in many urban areas, but um, let's just listen to the lyrics for a little bit and then we're gonna sort of unpack these lyrics, okay? All right. Y'all can vibe to it. Yeah, you gotta <laughs> vibe a little bit. You gotta feel it. It's like the. What's up? The pressure's out of turn, baby. Why y'all been shy? Get with it. Detroit in 2000, so I'm a class of 2000. Um, and I remember leaving, I went to school in Mississippi and going to Mississippi, it was a completely different culture evolving around fashion, right? And you know, after I'm there for four years and then I kind of move on with this sort of um, theoretically upward mobility, I began to look back at this part of my life, being in Detroit like, ugh. And, you know, my mother had kind of motivated me to like work a job and spend 300 on a Gucci belt, right? And so me sort of reflecting on that and kind of thinking in terms of like respectability, I'm like, why would we do that? She should have been telling me to save, although she should have, but I'm like, I'm, I'm past that stage, right? Um, 
What happened? Okay. Okay, but thank you so much. <laughs> Um, so about a year, a year ago, I started creating this work when I began really interrogating my upbringing, my childhood. Um, the piece to your left is called Archetype of a Five Star, which is inspired by a Trina song, which is called um, Five Star Bitch, right? Um, and then um, on the right is called, you know, Young Woman um, with the Alligator Bag sitting next to a mannequin. And so for me, I was thinking about what did it mean to kind of, you know, really invest in your appearance, right? Um, to me, the girl on the left was the, the woman who had it all. She's wearing a designer bag. She has a lot of confidence. She has attitude. Um, and her outfit is like really, really fly. And the woman to the right, she's standing next to a headless white mannequin. And that was my way of, and a nuanced way of talking about like, it's really not about whiteness. You know, they're headless. This is about me kind of looking back at the cultural aesthetics um, of my upbringing and kind of celebrating it because it was, again, I was looking at it for a really long time in a, in a very negative connotation, right? So this is a body work from about a year, a year and a half ago. So fast forward to my exhibition, um, Stay Fly. So the previous exhibition with this work was called Fly Girl Fly, right? Um, so. Within this exhibition, I began really interrogating my, um, my upbringing. And so on here, we have a series of photographs with my mother, um, several photos of me. And to me, this was sort of an installation with, which was um, a generational conversation about how each generation we utilize fashion to navigate. So the questions that popped up in my head was, why is it that it was really important to really invest in these, these social, um, these sort of social investments of how I present myself? Again, I've always looked at it in a negative connotation, but maybe it's something to there, right? Maybe me kind of dressing in this sort of luxury brands, and, and luxury brands doesn't necessarily mean that it's, you know, a Gucci or a Prada, but more so like things that are kind of flamboyant, right? Like these boots I'm wearing. Like you don't wear it every day, but you she know. You, okay, kind of, right? Since I'm at teaching, I'm kind of, I'm doing a lot now. Um, but it was this, it was something, it was, I was really intrigued by this, this idea of it, right? Um, so within this, um, these are the photographs. Um, Desiree has an amazing vintage collection of 90s era um, clothing pieces. And so I went into her space and, you know, prior to going into her space, we had a series of conversations and she essentially curated pieces that fit along, that aligned with these, this aesthetic that I'm talking about, like very logo heavy um, and not just things that were of my era coming up in the 90s, but also thinking about my mother, what would my mother wear? Um, so it, it created this really inter interesting conversation between the actual work and pieces of clothing. Um, and I just want to, where's that piece at? Uh, I want to point something out. Okay, so right, it's one picture 
I'm gonna point, they can't see it on the podcast right here, of my mother in a fur coat, and this is me sort of dressing in my mother's fur coat. So, um, you know, this is a really special piece to me. And there's a photograph of my mother, which you can't really see well, but this is like an early 90s. She's wearing a hot pink and orange wig. So this is pre, you know, Little Kim and Nicki Minaj. And I remember thinking at the time, I was like really cringe, really embarrassed about it because my mother had these wigs to go with her outfits. But as I began to really unpack it, it's like, what is that all about? You know what I mean? This, this ability to kind of, kind of change up who you are and, and in spite of, you know, going through whatever adversities you're going through. And I, and I just want to state, I'm, I was born in 82. I'm an 80s baby. That's Reaganomics, the crack epidemic era, right? So we're talking about going through tumultuous times, but still being able to, in spite of, still look really fly. Um, so uh, what became like a reoccurring motif in my work is this Kuji sweater. Um, and I first did started putting this sort of Kuji motif in my work in 2014 after my brother Farad, rest in peace, was murdered. Um, but he was he really loved Kuji sweaters, right? Um, and I was thinking back, like in the 90s, you had to have a Kuji with the matching like Gucci loafers or Hush Puppies, right? Because Hush Puppies came in various colors and styles. Mm -hmm. um, every color and every, every color, right? And it's what's so funny about Hush Puppies, if they got wet, it was just, it was a wrap, right? It was because they were suede shoes. Um, so I put this um, over a vanity and it, it kind of was this sort of homage to that era, an homage to my, um, to my, to my brother. Um, going into the work, so these pieces, this is my actual work, my collage work. And as I began really unpacking my work, my work is about this layering, right? And when I think in terms of this Midwestern Detroit, Chicago, and kind of Harlem aesthetic, we would call it like really flamboyant, gaudy, or country, right? And when I think of saying country, like, oh, you look country, it was a negative connotation, but as I look back, like we migrated, many of us migrated from the South. So to me, I look at that as this is indigenous. This is our roots, right? So I began to sort of subvert the, the negative connotations about how we presented ourselves. So my work is in this sense is would be similar to like layering clothes, layering textures. Um, and you would see these, these sort of palettes when you go into Harlem, when you go on 125th Street, when, you know, when you're downtown Detroit. I mean, and I'm not that, I'm not sure of that aesthetic here in DC. And if, once we get the conversation rolling, and I'm sure Desiree was, and, and Melanie, because they're both DC natives, um, to talk about it. And so this one right here, this is the first time that I utilize text in my work. and. Um, I'm a Howard University alum. I received my MFA there. And some of my mentors are part of an artist collective called Afro-Cobra, African Commune of Bad Relevant Artists. And they have a very specific aesthetic, very specific theory in relationship to how they um, jam tight, um, is it jelly tight, uh, Kool-Aid colors. They have a list. Of, of, of criteria that fit their aesthetic. So this is me kind of very intentionally planned off of um, their expressive awesomeness. That was definitely one of them. And using text is one of them. And I've, 
And I've always, um, kind of, I, I was very fearful, historically of using text in my work, but I'm like, you know, I wanna try this. And keep in mind, this is my first solo show in DC in five years. So I felt like, you know, I need to make sure that I give some love to the, the, home, the hometown, right? Um, so these are some other collages, um, small pieces that I, I did and keep in mind, like, so I'm thinking of rhythm, I'm thinking of, I'm thinking of clothing. So a lot, I'm incorporating collage paper. I'm also um, including textile in the works and glitter. And my work, you have to see it in person because it's so much, you know, texture and nuance that it just doesn't read on it. Um, so this is the part where um, the clothing installation that I had. So again, Desiree had this really beautiful collection. And so like this is the Moschino outfit. And I remember Little Kim, Lil Kim, okay, not Little Kim, <laughs> um, Lil Kim kind of rocking this. Um, and then I think, so my mother dances. So um, she does social dancing. In DC, it's called hand dancing. And in Detroit, we call it Detroit Bop. Chicago is Chicago stepping, right? Um, and so I'm thinking about this, these things that my mother will wear, um, things that I will wear, and, and sort of creating this conversation. And these are like items that are really precious. I was afraid to handle them. I mean, um, and we incorporated some purses in there, fur, minks, and to the left is really interesting. Um, so I went to Canal Street in New York and I purchased a whole bunch of knockoff things, right? So I bought some Bulek, Louis Vuitton, Gucci belts, and it was something, what's interesting about it is, it was something that was very empowering about that experience. And I need to unpack that further, why it is. Um, yeah, so I created, it's this beautiful mannequin that Desiree let me borrow, and we put fake fingernails on it. Um, but it was this, and also the significance of the mink, right? Because growing up in the Midwest, like minks are, were essential, right? Because uh, it's cold, <laughs> it's cold, it's cold up north. And um, so I created this beautiful, in my opinion, it's beautiful, this really beautiful conversation between the artworks and um, the, the clothing. And it was in, um, and from this, I had to, ask myself, like, what does luxury mean to me? Because interestingly, right outside of this gallery is the Gucci store. Like, if you look out the window, you yeah. see the Gucci store, right? So it created this really interesting conversation. And keep in mind, I have Gucci Gucci pieces that are in here. And I'm like, to me, you know, luxury for me is about this sense of agency of your body, right? Um, being able to, to express yourself. And um, my husband and I were having conversations about like us being really colorful. And us being colorful is really like the, this sort of antithesis of this white construct, right? Um, and part of that upward mobility that we have as people of color is like, well, let's be presentable. We don't want to offend. Make sure your hair is presentable. And for me, when I look back in my upbringing, it's, it was about that celebration of being free. When you look at sagging clothes, that is a, a complete you know, kind of F you to like just being free, you know, you can kiss my ass, you know. Um, and the, the really large hairstyles that I, you know, historically wouldn't wear, but I'm like, it's something, I respect people who have that sense of agency over, that, over their bodies. 
So, you know, what does it mean to exist with having what appears to be luxury brands in areas where, you know, it's predominantly white areas? Um, or for me, this, when I dress up and I'm kind of like wearing Jordans or I'm like really intentional about my dress, you know, I was in Southeast last week and I had on some Louis Vuitton boots, you know, whatever. And I was stopped like five times, right? And this is Southeast DC, a very, a very black community. And I'm like, yes, thank you, you know? And I'm like, this is who I'm doing this for. And so this idea of luxury is about, you know, you want to impress your, the people that you're closest to, the people who mean the most to you. I don't care, you know, how people may view me on Capitol Hill, but you know, when I step out in Southeast, I'm just like, this for y'all, y'all, I, I made it, right? Um, so I, I began really embracing that. And, you know, I began having these conversations with, with Desiree um, because she's involved with the fashion or interrogating it in a way that I'm not. Like, I'm looking at it, you know, purely for its aesthetics and from a very autobiographical, biographical lens. Um, so it was really refreshing to begin having these conversations with her to see how our practices intersect. Um, and I just want to say for the opening, this is my best friend, Marilyn. Um, so she DJ the the opening of the show, and what's really interesting, I've never had a DJ at an opening before. I you know talked to her and I told her, can you curate a soundtrack? Because we grew up together, we've known each other since we were in fifth grade, went to every school together. And I said, create a soundtrack that was very, that's very reminiscent of our upbringing. Mm -hmm. And it just really set the, the, the tone. And I just really want to do a nod because the music is, is, is go hand in hand with how we, you know, how we view ourselves or we sort of mimicking what the star. So, you know, Lil' Kim, which I'm sure we'll talk about, um, you know, she was a very major pillar um, within that, but be beyond Lil' Kim, again, I had my mom, <laughs> you know, so, um, so yeah. Want more art? The Barbershop Project presented by Culture DC is a multidisciplinary arts activation inspired by the performance of style and shop culture. Artist Devin Shinoyama, fresh off a solo show at the Andy Warhol Museum, is collaborating with Barbara Pelsbottoms Kelly Dorship and furniture artisan Caleb Woodard to transform the mobile art gallery into a fantastical, fully functional barbershop. The best part? You can get a free haircut while enjoying an immersive art installation. We also have an exciting lineup of programming throughout the summer highlighting DC artists. Check out the Barbershop Project, presented by Culture DC, opening May 4th at The Arc, also known as the Town Hall Education Arts Recreation Campus, at 1901 Mississippi Avenue, Southeast. Okay, so this exhibit is deeply personal for Jamia, and equally deeply personal for me. In so many words, you know, in, in learning your story, your familiar, uh, your family story, and uh, especially seeing the images of your mother in the 80s, late 80s and 90s, and how a lot of the outfits she was wearing in those photos, like I wish I owned, because I would still slay them today, um, <laughs> allowed me to once again see myself reflected, right? Which is what I believe we're all constantly seeking. I'll offer a bit of background in my own personal journey with fashion and how I intellectualize fashion, but also how I weaponize fashion. I am not a DC native, so to correct you, I am actually a native of Freetown, Sierra Leone, which is in West Africa. 
I immigrated to this country at age seven in 1989. So in a really pivotal time in US history. And mind you, I grew up in several countries before landing here and spent time in different countries. All those countries heavily influenced by what was happening here in the US. So when I came, I assimilated, I you know, fit right in. The, the, the dress, the lingo, and all those elements were already a part of my own identity. In fact, I took ownership of them. I didn't see myself as an outsider. And I you know, spent my, I've been here ever since. And in 2004, while I was in graduate school, I became undocumented. And it was a 13-year battle of challenging what a government suggested of my identity, which was that I did not belong and that they had right and ownership and, uh, uh, and I had no agency in being able to exist in, in place, but also being able to be mobile in, in, in throughout this, this life. It was incredibly challenging to complete my education. Everything was, I, was, I paid for a university out of pocket um, and international student rates, which is ridiculous. Um, and moreover, found myself in this 13-year legal battle in and out of federal immigration courts. And one of the things that I reflect back and working with me on this project really allowed me to perhaps dive a little deeper, right? Um, because in the last several years since that process came to a conclusion, um, which concluded with uh, six months in solitary confinement under ICE um, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, I vividly remember the day I was arrested by ICE. I was in a federal courtroom in the Fallon Building in Baltimore. And this was year 12 of going in and out of these courts. Um, at that time, I had an attorney. For a few years, I represented myself. And my attorney was running, was delayed due to traffic going to Baltimore at 8 a.m. on a Tuesday. My mother was with me because she refused to leave my side throughout this entire journey. And I stood in front of this immigration judge wearing a, what I would call a, a, a orange, really vivid orange, almost neon orange vintage wool jumpsuit. It was January of 2013. A jumpsuit I had scored at an estate sale some time back because that's who I am. And I had snakeskin boots on, and my hair was up in a top knot, and I had a wool coat on. I, didn't, I looked like I didn't belong in that particular setting. I had red lips, my signature red lips. Every time I went in front of an immigration judge, they challenged why I was in front of them. Well, are you the lawyer? Like, no, I'm not the lawyer. Um, well, why are you here? Well, you tell me. You, you, you called me up here, right? Well, why are you dressed like that? And this is coming from tenured immigration ju federal judges, right? And always challenging what I had on, why I had it, and how I was able to afford it. Because mind you, while you're undocumented, you're unemployable. You cannot legally work. And it was fascinating to stand and to justify why I put myself together to enter this space to defend myself and fight essentially for my life. I walked out of that courtroom that day. ICE agents approached me. I was arrested. By about 8 PM that night, I had traded my self-chosen, a self-selected jumpsuit for a prison and issued a prison jumpsuit in the same color. And that did not miss me. I remember handing over my personal attire that I had worn 
and receiving and taking this prison issue jumpsuit and putting that on and that being my uniform for the next six months of my life. And I'm happy to say I won my case. I'm home. I'm here legally, so you don't have to call anyone. It's okay. Um, and I will say that since then, it's made it more necessary for me to really interrogate who a passion is and how not only is it to stylize and to shape one's identity, which is something that I learned from a grandmother and aunties and a mother who were always well put together no matter what, it also allowed me to understand that throughout those 13 years, I was able to navigate economically and socially because of the way I put myself together. I never looked downtrodden, even though my circumstances suggested otherwise. And so in my bit, I'd love to talk about, again, just appearance style and how there's all these multiple and overlapping identities, much of the understanding of collage style and layering of identity and space and, the con and contextualizing that within the socio-political, the economical, and the cultural. And so, we not working now? Okay. <laughs> you know, much like Jamia's work in the everyday, believe it or not, you also layer and create yourself. Would you agree with that? Right? We all participate to some degree of, of, of cultivating one's own identity through dress. Last I checked, it was illegal to walk out of your home nude, right? And so we all abide by the law. And so there is this uh, uh, exploration that if you were to take the time to really explore you know, your, your own elements and uh, uh, ability to self-actualize, to recontextualize your position in this world and how you present, you know, to explore this multilateral identity that we're constantly kind of moving in and out of, in and out of, in and out of, and in different phases of our life, it changes, some more intentionally and some not so much. But there is this uh, element of construction that comes with dress that I, I'm fascinated by and always have been, you know, as a seven-year-old uh, uh, watching my grandmother put herself together, you know, and, and being amazed by what that meant for this woman who was mother to five children, was a small business owner, serial entrepreneur herself, had been married to my grandmother at the time, you know, 40 plus years, and continued to take time and effort and to essentially educate me, her only granddaughter, that the way you, you have all power in the way you present, and no one can ever take that away from you. And so while the world may move and shake and bounce here and there, you still have the ability to show them who you are and to set the tone for how they respond to you and they're on. And so, you know, Jamia presented these amazing images of her mother. Mind you, my mother never wore anything like this, so <laughs> she just, she did not. You know, and I, I wish my mom did, because I would have inherited those things. However, you know, this is the queen bee, right? And so in engaging this conversation and exploring what this installation would look like, you know, we imagined what Jamia's mom's wardrobe, her closet, you know, what the women of the 90s and little Kim I, I present as this the icon in terms of she took what was street culture and globalized it. Right? Um, she's she's been ex, 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 in, in my estimation, one of the pioneers of the aesthetic that is now rampant in fashion, right? L along with, if you, are you familiar with Fashion Nova? 
Yes, okay. This is essentially the Fashion Nova aesthetic, right? That is grossing billions of dollars annually, right? But it comes and is informed very heavily by these ghetto chicks. And so Little Kim is a fascinating, fascinating subject and I understand her place in society and that of women of her generation and her time. You know, to have been women who took ownership of the body, their body, and essentially shape the context in which you would engage them. And some look at their image, their, the, these images and the optics of it and say, oh, they're over-sexualized, they're exploited themselves. But if you also listen to the lyrics, which is, and to Jamia's point, the sound and the sonics were, were absolutely necessary to contextualize and to understand the visual and the optics. And so if you listen to the Little Kim's lyrics and women of her time, she spoke of the experiences of the average woman in an urban neighborhood, right? Navigating life, essentially seeking survival and doing it at any means necessary. I consider that empowerment. Keep your stone set. I got my own baguettes, right? Talk about economic empowerment being able to earn, to be able to survive, to be able to take care of oneself, and to be able to navigate through, through the world without necessarily depending on a man and without depending on anyone else but their own ability. And we continue to explore what this really looks like. And in the exhibit in Stay Fly, you know, the, the vision for this space was so densely layered and so textured and, and, and visually dense much like Jamia's own work. You know, the, another aspect of the work that I find fascinating is the women of this time, Jamia's mother included, continue to offer a fashion, an industry, a trillion dollar industry, ideas and context, and essentially raw material with which they're able to create goods that they commodify and distribute. And quite often, these women in the hood aren't able to leverage or participate in this economy. And that's the aspect of the, the work that fascinates me more than anything. So much of my work is creating space to ensure that these women can earn their keep, right? Can move into spaces where they're able to leverage and monetize their cultural and aesthetic contributions to society. We call them cultural pioneers, cultural producers, trendsetters, global influencers. But ultimately, we all understand that it is ghetto until proven fashionable, until we see it on a Vogue magazine. But trust and believe those tips or that pink wig existed in the hood long before. This is nothing new, nothing new. As we explore what this really means to understand fashion in the context of economics. You know, indigenous Americans, black Americans account for 15% of the population in the United States, about roughly 42 million people. A GDP of $2.2 trillion. We are consumers through and through. So comparatively, consider that if indigenous Americans, black Americans were a country, they would be the 10th largest country in the world. So consider Africa's GDP across all 52 countries. What does that say? 
2.3 trillion dollars. Black Americans, 2.2 trillion dollars. Let that sink in. Does that message just power? No? No? Economic power? Akin to that that Dr. King talked about? That's just economic power. However, where is this money going? I think that's the question we continue to ask ourselves. As we're talking about the commercialization of black fashion and hood fashion, it's really important to also put into context, considering we are in the nation's capital, Washington, DC, gentrification and displacement. My work is rooted in creating space, brick and mortar space, that is diversely owned and that reflects identities outside of the status quo. And so we operate as a think tank. I operate a, a think tank and a, a social equity firm called Coleman Cotton. And our work is rooted in ensuring that we can create space on the street level, on the high street, where ownership of these brick and mortar stores could come back to people that look like myself, Jamie and Melanie, and many of you in this room, and that we therefore can also participate in the economic wealth and economic growth of this city. We do that through a myriad of ways, through advocacy and policy, and we also do that through what we call progressive patronage, which is educating consumers about one, ownership, understandings of what, it's, what is necessary in the retail sphere, to ensure that displacement can be mitigated. We did a, a survey in the past year, and although DC's population is still about 48% black, less than 3% of the brick and mortar businesses are black owned. This is while the city is experiencing its most insane and rapid economic growth. That is a disgrace, and if we don't call that racial discrimination, I don't know what else to call it. 92% of sales still take place in the brick and mortar. Not online, don't let them fool you. They happen in store. And if we don't have ownership in store, then where does that put us? I'm certain in the conversation, we'll circle back to some of these points. I know Melanie has some good questions. Some good questions. <laughs> And in fact, the question I kind of want to maybe dive into, I'm not going to look at my slides. We can just focus on the good juice that we have here. Um, I want to begin with what may seem like a broad question that you've touched on, but I think I want to dive into it more and thinking about economic impact. Um, so I'm not a native of DC either. I'm a transplant. I moved here as a young kid, and I grew up around Universal Madness and Solviato and Shooters, which are these local urban brands, which to be honest, when you look at the history of them, they reflect a kind of collage aesthetic. Um, very brightly saturated palettes, um, contrast uh, hoodies, you know. And, and these are um, outfits that would be worn to the go-go, right? Um, so thinking about um, even go-go and collages, go really down. 
the collage rabbit hole with Jamia's work. But I wanted to ask really uh, both Jamia and Desiree, you all are sensitive to the diversity of economic context, thinking about uh, purchasing a knockoff or booster culture, as you, as you talked about, versus how we invest and where our money goes uh, for high-end um, goods, right? Um, but behind the practice of fashion and self-adornment, what does Stay Fly as an exhibition teach us, right, about um, aesthetics and politicized fashion practice and economic empowerment? So just to, to break these kind of larger ideas down a little bit more around Stay um, So I'll start off. So one of the things that, you know, as I began kind of, um, once I stepped into this, like really interrogating fashion, what it meant for me, the story of Dapper Dan is like the, it's a, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Dapper Dan, but in the 80s, he had this sort of underground um, space where he kind of, um, kind of made the luxury brands even more luxury. So he created, you know, these amazing pieces. And essentially, um, this was two years ago, or was that a year ago? But maybe two years ago, Gucci, literally kind of knocked off what the knockoff um, designer created and you know people on the social medias were, were really they just kind of like hell no right and so Gucci wound up you know picking Dapper Dan up and he works with him right this and is so, this is after Gucci had there was a yes. about 10 year legal battle mm -hmm. because Gucci filed suit against Dapper Dan for utilizing their logo and clothing hip-hop stars who Gucci themselves will not dress at the time. Right, so, you know, so he's working for Gucci right now. Um, so the conversations that sort of arise, and I don't know, and that's, again, we can have this conversation is, you know, why didn't Dapper Dan create his own brand, right? So the question is, would his design have the same resonance or the same you know, sort of high fashion appeal if he utilized his own logos, right? So for me, what I'm interested in, I'm interested in sort of subverting that, what we kind of sweep under the rug, that whole ghetto culture, you know what I mean? So looking at like ghetto prom dresses, so I've really been inter interested in that because when I was in high school, I designed like ghetto prom dresses for my girls. My, my classmates and including myself, but what does it mean if we begin to take ownership of that? Because if we don't, you know, we're gonna see it on the runway. So I don't know the answer to that question, but I'm curious as to what your idea is to that because what happens is we, uh, we outsource our, our genius, right? Um, and, you know, my hope is that, you know, with, in 2019, I think that, you know, we're like millennials and, and the Gen Zers, young folks, right? Um, we are beginning to really embrace this idea of, of, of buying black. So, um, I don't know, what is your, what's your thought? Um, I would say it's just a, it's a continuation of the understanding of a necessity of buying quote unquote black. And you know this is this is has been rooted from time immemorial. The idea that we did not support each other um, in these economic ways are are complete fallacies, right? Um, to answer your question, I would say that the Dapper Dan's 
because he is not isolated. There are many designers of his time who took the onus and you know took the responsibility of essentially design in you know and creating space within this fashion world for people in their neighborhood and more importantly those in their neighborhood who had the potential and upward mobility you know the rappers of their generation the those who were transferring from kind of street or hood culture right whether they had been you know the jay-z's they had been selling drugs on the block to now legitimizing their trade you know and now slinging records right and it's there is an under, there is a necessity of luxury, right? There, there's a fascinating necessity of luxury, and I always make the argument that you know black folk aren't just luxury whores. It goes deeper than that. I really believe we're finally attuned to quality. We like good shit, and that's not a bad thing. It's not something I've ever been embarrassed about, particularly when I've been in circumstances where folks try to shame me for it. Why you buy, why you gotta buy that? Because it's well designed and it's gonna last me a long time and it's an investment piece. And more importantly, when I'm ready to sell it, typically I can actually sell it for more than I bought it. It's called a flip. Right? This is an investment piece. And so there is an out there is an element of of intellect, you know, and financial literacy that comes with buying luxury and knowing that when you are prepared to carry it forward to the next custodian that you can at the very least get back what you invested, if not more, right? Which is also why I buy vintage. And I also want to note, because when I, growing up, you know, in high school, and that it happens today, people will skip school when the J's came out. Definitely. Mm -hmm. And so, J's are Jordans, okay? And so, we have a friend, Marcus, who has the, he has like, how many pairs of Jordans, Lord? He has every pair of Jordans that ever came out, right? So there, there has to be this sort of like, you know, this literacy on the flipping because now, you know, there's this whole sneaker culture. So now going back, it wasn't like crazy. We just didn't understand we we're investing in these minks, this jewelry, these shoes. And when you have that sort of respectability politics, like, oh, you know, you buying those Jordans, they, you, you, you're spending all your money on that. But what's interesting about it is it was, it's actually a really wise investment if you utilize it wisely, right? And I think it's interesting to think about the way in which even those consumer uh, practices were villainized, like in the public, yeah. like, oh, they're spending their government money on. I mean, it became a larger narrative. Yeah. And so you're really helping to push us to think about leisure and luxury as subversion. I think that's kind of mm -hmm. uh, it's this resistant subversion. What terms would you put behind what you're trying to communicate to people? Mm -hmm. I would, I would say it's a form of subversion. Um, and I think that it's, and I'm also learning to kind of check myself and begin to take ownership and look at it for like really, again, I didn't, I wouldn't have thought about this if I didn't like really interrogate these practices. And I also want to talk about um, what's really big in the Midwest. I don't know if it's out here, y'all can correct me, was the whole customization, right? So, and it was really big for prom where, you know, we would design our prom dresses, the social dancing, when people would go hand dancing, Chicago stepping, the partners will get their clothes 
customized to kind of go with their car, okay? Which is like a whole thing. And the part of the reason they were doing that is because they weren't allowed or we weren't allowed to shop in these stores. And again, it's this idea of like wanting to have luxury, wanting to, to, to be fly. Um, and it's like, okay, well, I can sew and I'm, that's what I'll, I'll do. So what I am like trying to practice is this whole idea of customization, right? Um, and again, taking ownership of these aesthetics and practices that we have over years and myself that I have over time kind of like, ugh, here we go. Mm -hmm. Those people doing those things, you know, which is like really problematic. I've always been those people to some people. <laughs> Here she come overdressed. Why is she wearing that? This is DC. Like, come on. It's, you know, like, she's not on New Ice Runway. Like, yeah. yeah. Same song, right? And, <laughs> and it's also interesting to even relate this, the practice of collage, building up layers to the lyrics. Um, to not just stay fly, but I was even listening to the 3-6 Mafia stay fly, or not still fly, but the 3-6 Mafia stay fly. And the way, now granted, when you see through all the misogyny and all of the really <laughs> the offensive layers. vocabulary, the, layers, the right? song Stay Fly is really about how luxury goods build up this kind of armor where these men feel like they can break the law. And whether it's driving down the streets of Memphis smoking weed or, you know, pulling a, a, a weapon on someone. But it's, it's just about how that fashion practice empowers you beyond your social circle. Right. There is an um, invincibility that yeah. comes with, yes, yeah. absolutely. So I want to go back to Stay Fly. So I think, and you all kind of tiptoed on it, but I want to dig deeper. The exhibition does something important in terms of like the construction of space in DC. So if you can, and I'm going to be descriptive here, you leave the urban center, right, uh, in the urban pace of city center, and you're transported into what seems to be a very intimate interior space. Yeah. I mean, you don't even hear outside or you know the no, traffic or anything pretty, once you're in there yeah. and I was thinking about this space in two ways I'm like this could be like no I don't have a luxury closet like this but this could be someone's luxury closet yeah. or it could be that small store that you go to get your crop top for right. the concert tonight so I'm just thinking about uh, how do what were you thinking about in terms of uh, your aesthetics pra practice yeah. and redefining notions of space in a DC that's rapidly changing in the ways you were talking about, Desiree? Um, so for me, I was, when I created this installation, I wanted to create a space that was black, a space that was indigenous. And when people walk in, they like, okay, we here. Um, and it's, again, it's this really interesting conversation of being in the nation's capital, um, a couple of blocks away from the White House and having this very, um, I mean, we, we DC is, is a black city, it's historically been black, but it was a really interesting conversation with these ideas of goods. Um, because as Desiree said, you know, throughout the years and even still to, to today, your question of like, who are you to own that? Mm -hmm. Why why are you owning that? Um, and it was also, again, for me, really, empowering to have these knockoff bags within this space right alongside Gucci you know or Louis Vuitton and to be able to have these fake bags um, 
up up in there. And so it's kind of a direct affront, right? I, I I think I think so because again, at the end of the day, it's not about it's not it's about my community. It's about the relationship that myself and others who can relate have to this space. It wasn't about these luxury brand, you know, those stores outside of it. Interestingly, most of the workers in these spaces are black folks, right? And I walked in every single store, you know, you walk in and kind of look at you like, okay, you should go buy or look or steal or whatever. Um, I mean, you know, um, I have friends who like, yeah, I used to be up in there, you know, kind of <laughs> getting some things, but um, I talked to them. I mean, you know, whatever. I talked to the workers and I'm like, yo, you need to check this out. Like, I'm, I'm doing this for you, you know? And they're like, okay, we gonna come to the opening. Um, so for me, it was really empowering to create this sort of hub of this sort of celebration, this ode to this upbringing that I kind of was embarrassed about or a little felt a little cringe. So it felt really, really empowering. Well, the placement was not lost on me at all, at all, in, in all that City Center represents um, in the District of Columbia doing a really significant time uh, to have Jamia's work displayed on that site. You know, when she called me and she shared her, her vision, and then she told me the site, I was like, oh, I'm in for <laughs> multiple reasons. I mean, it really creates this a uh, 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 juxtaposition that is really quite fascinating and much to Melanie's point. You know, I, I often say that as the city shifts, you know, and I'm all for development. I, I find that many of these neighborhoods and communities throughout the city and as well as communities throughout this country, you know, have been neglected for so bloody long. Now that we do see development, um, the, the, it is necessary in many regards. The challenge of development, however, is that the human impact is not being mitigated. And you are displacing people, both in residential and in commercial senses, and culturally. And that all ties back down to the economics, right? So it's the irony of creating this very intimate space of, that any one of our mothers or aunties, right, could have existed, could have had of their own, and likely did. You know, at that particular site, you know, geographically was, was, is not lost on me to this day. Um, in contrast, and you know, when we were on site installing, walking, you know, I've been to city center time and time over. My facialist is there codally, so I go there like monthly. I walk that neighborhood and I never necessarily see, I see amazing brands and amazing stores that I like myself. However, I never necessarily see it as connected to the district. It's almost as if I'm being transported elsewhere when I go on site. And, you know, I'm rooted in community. My own personal retail spaces have always been in hoods on New York Avenue, currently on H Street, right? In hoods. And I engage in a multitude of people, right? From ambassadors, wives, and ambassadors themselves down to the neighborhood chick or dude who looking for something fly because it's Friday, right? And whenever when we went to install, I'm walking around city center, and perhaps it was perhaps one of the few times that I'd seen 
I could count the number of, you know, uh, I couldn't count the number of black folk that were there. We went to the opening, you know, because I'd never seen us that densely congregated on in city center. And I was like, this is new. And it shouldn't be, but it was new that night. And it stuck with me. It stuck with me. So there's a lot to be said there. There's quite a lot. That's really an important point to think about the opening, the density. Again, I spent my teenage years here, and I got back from graduate school, and sit in Center City existed. It, it was literally constructed. And so for me, Jamia's show is really a welcome home, I think, for the African-American community, making maybe a welcome sign to say, yes, your fashion practices are valid, yeah. right, alongside with Um, I don't know where we are for time. Okay, perfect. So my final question that I want to ask you all uh, has to really do with fashion memory and then how we construct that for the future, right? Because I think you all talked a lot about about your, you know, of course your mother and even the symbols that are in this space, the inclusion of Johnson Publishing um, magazines like Ebony and Essence, right? That again trans. Uh, really broadcasted fashion, right, uh, with a sense of pride. So thinking about um, what memories uh, should we walk away, how do we construct memories that empower us for the future? I know that's a hard question. But it is. It's, it's, it's important. <laughs> about that. Um, for me, it's, it's about taking ownership. And, you know, we, I mean, we, black folks, indigenous folks, whatever you want to call us. Um, we, we should be the custodians of, of our aesthetics, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think it's my priority to make sure that I am investing in people of color, right? Um, the brands and also, again, not being ashamed of that like flamboyant loud style and you have some really um amazing scholars that are really beginning to um kind of intellectualize it Definitely. um but you don't have to be a scholar to acknowledge you know and kind of respect what you know some of these things our mothers did and our, or our grandparents grandfathers mm -hmm. and fathers and so it's about just Taking ownership of it, you and know? I'm, and I'm glad you're even pushing us to go even beyond just the 90s, the 80s moment. Yeah. And really think about the cultural inheritance across, oh you know, culture that we walk yes. in with fabrics and materials yeah. uh, in a lot of ways. Because, I mean, you can find in D.C. public libraries photographs of late 19th century African-American mm -hmm. spaces. I mean, and you can see that there is a tension to dress, mm -hmm. right? Absolutely. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's the legacy. It is, it's very much the legacy. I, uh, I, I would add to, to your question that ultimately it's just a continuation. You know, this, this fashion memory is, is constantly, in my estimation, evolving and reshaping, reconstructing and deconstructing itself. It's, it's, it's cultural currency one, but it also denotes and suggests where we are as a as a people, right? And not merely people of color, black folk, but as society and in its totality. And so it's one that is, one, necessary, 
but more importantly, it presents and has these very interesting elements that suggest that place us in what's happening sociopolitically. You know, it's it's really fascinating to observe what's happening currently with the internet brands, like the Instagram brands, the Fashion Novas, and the Pretty Little Things, and the like. And to see how those brands that essentially are cheaply made, mass-produced garments are what grossing billions and billions of dollars, right? And are being widely distributed across this globe. And it's not just going, and these are, I mean, it's like three pieces of string connected makes like the dress, right? So it's very poorly made pieces. I and mean, we're not even gonna talk about the labor challenges there. But just in the items themselves, they're not just going to the hood chick in the hood. They're going to the suburban girls in the suburbs, right? And so there's a lot to explore when we, we, we think about one fashion leg legacy and our inheritance. I know that my att attraction to fashion has always been very much rooted in just placing melanated bodies in past times. And one of the more significant ways I was able to do that in my own research, and this started when I was 14, you know, was through these archival images and seeing that we were well adorned and well dressed from time immemorial. And that has been the consistency, although our narratives and stories have changed, and particularly from continent to continent, we've always been well adorned. You know, like you see a Maasai woman go into the well in the 1800s to get water, but fly. She's getting water, but she's fly, you know? And, you know, I remember my own grandmother going to the market to get, you know, produce and fish to cook for the family in sequins. In West Africa, it was hot, but she had her on her sequins. You know, and there was no necessary, con there was no convention to that. There was no functionality per se, but it was what she wanted to wear. And so she wore it. And so I honor that to this day. Jamia honors that. And I know you do as well. This podcast is powered by Candor, a digital production lab based in Northeast D.C. We help you build powerful marketing content, connect with your audience and grow your business. Want to become a content expert? Swing by our studio on the Arts Walk in Brooklyn, or check us out online at candorlabs.com. That's candor with two A's.